Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. So let's jump in. Let's get into our series today. So we have been in the book of Romans. And if you don't know anything about the book of Romans, it is in the New Testament. It's a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome. He's never been there before, but he loves these people. And so he's giving them some deep philosophical and theological information. He's talking about here's who Jesus is and here's why he lived and died. And here's how we can apply this to our life. And so the subtitle for this series is, if you want to live differently, you got to think differently because Paul is going to make you think when you're reading his letters. And so throughout this series, we have been looking at some key verses along the way, exploring those on the weekends. And then during the midweek, we gave you a study guide that you can read through and work through some of, uh, some of the rest of the verses. So let's jump in. We're gonna be in Romans 10 today, verse one. If you have Bibles, Bible app, we can jump in. If not, I'll read it here. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Now, you don't know this, but what's happening in the the background is the church in Rome is growing, but it's growing with people that you wouldn't expect because it's a bunch of people who are not Jewish. They're Gentiles. And you would think it would be the Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish. He's supposed to be the fulfillment of these prophecies, the Messiah. And yet the Jews are not interested in following Jesus. It's all these Gentiles. And so he's looking at what's taking place and he's going, wait a minute, Why are my people, because Paul is Jewish, why are my people rejecting Jesus? And you can see his affection for these people. He says, it's my heart's desire. Because for Paul, it's not just some obscure group of people, a philosophy, an ideology that's not, no, no. These are his friends. These are his family. These are the people whom he loves desperately. He says in another part of the the book that he would trade places with them if he could. It shows how badly he wants them to know Jesus. And already some of us can relate to what Paul is saying here. As we have friends, we have family, we have co-workers that we just so desperately want them to know Jesus. Like we love them. And the, the core part of our life is knowing Jesus. And so having them in our life and not having them know Jesus just breaks our hearts. See, that's what Paul is saying here. Is it just breaks my heart that my people, my people who were supposed to be people who are waiting for Jesus and to welcome Jesus for some reason, they don't love Jesus. Goes to the next verse. For I can testify about them that they are zealous. Now, zealous pretty much just means passionate. That they are passionate for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. And so he says, these are people who love God. I mean, they spend all day, every day thinking about God, following his commands, reading his word. These people are passionate about God. The problem is that they lack knowledge. Now, wait a minute. How do they lack knowledge? Because these are the same people who, as they searched the Old Testament, they would know the prophecies about the coming Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled them. They lived in a time in which they could have interacted with Jesus or at least people that knew Jesus. They could have been eyewitnesses to Jesus. So how did they not know? Well, it's not that they didn't know. It's that they didn't accept the knowledge. The knowledge was readily available. The information was there. The problem is they were uninterested. I think... um, A lot of people fall into this category when it comes to Jesus. You're either apathetic or you're just, you just don't accept it. You've heard the stories before. It's kind of hard not to hear the stories before. I uh, shared a couple weeks ago that one of my, one of my pastimes is working out in the garage. I have an old truck, work on that. But my more, more, um, 
recent pastimes is hanging out with Jehovah's Witnesses while I work on my truck in my garage. They go door to door. My garage door is open. I welcome them in. We have great conversations. Lots of fun for everybody, at least for me. And so we're... We were chatting a few weeks ago, and I presented them with what I thought was a bunch of really good questions, and, um, and they said that they would get back to me. And this has happened to me before. They said they'd get back to me, and 10 years later, I haven't seen them since. But this time, they did. They came back two weeks later. Same deal. I was in my garage, working, out, working on my truck, and this time, they brought their friends. And so... Um, they came up and they said, hey, we told you we'd be back. We've been spending the last couple weeks studying and getting the answers to your questions. And we brought some of our friends in order to help you understand. And I said, great, let's, let's talk. And so for the next hour, we started to talk about some of the questions I had. And I presented some more questions to them and they to me. And, and at the very end of the conversation, when it was all wrapping up, I said, what would it take for you to change your mind? Like, what could I say to you that would change your belief? And their answer was Nothing. So, so what you're telling me is there's no amount of information, there's no knowledge that you could gain in order to change your belief. No. See, the, those people, they're zealous. They're passionate about their belief in God. They go door to door. They bring their friends. They're willing to study for a couple weeks in order to have a conversation. They're zealous. Yet they lack knowledge. And it's not because the knowledge isn't available. The knowledge is there. They can get it from me. They can get it from the internet. They can get it anywhere. But they're just uninterested. And that's what Paul is saying here. There's this cultural belief that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. Like, it's okay. You believe what you want to believe, but it's just as long as you... And I get that. I understand. Sincerity is a good thing. I don't think we want people to be insincere about their beliefs. I think we want them to be real and authentic. The problem is, is you can be sincerely wrong in your beliefs. We see this all the time. We saw a terrible example of this this last month of a bunch of people who were zealous in their pursuit of God, who believed that they knew what was right and wrong. In fact, that God ordained what they were doing as they slaughtered innocent people. You can be zealous, you can be sincere, and yet you can be sincerely wrong. Three, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, I'm going to give you a little recap for some of you. Is there some theological words in here? <clears throat> One of which is righteousness. Righteousness simply means you're in right standing with God. So when God looks at you, he goes, we're good. Relationally, there's no obstacles. There's no awkwardness. There's no conflict. You and I, we have no problems. We're in right standing. And then he also gives this, uh, this, this phrase, the law. What is the law? Well, the law is God's moral law. See, God is perfect. He is holy. He is good. And from him flows moral perfection. And so what he says is good and right and just, that's the law. That's the standard. And we can come to know God's law through different ways. If you're a Jewish in the Old Testament, you th knew it through things like the Ten Commandments. If you're a follower of Jesus, we know what his law is. His law is to love people like he loved us. Or if you're not a church person, if you're not a Bible person, if you're an atheist, you don't believe any of this stuff, you still know God's law. It is written on your heart. It is your conscience. Isn't it interesting that you know what is right and wrong? That there is a standard that you should live by? And almost everybody agrees. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. That's fundamental to humanity is we somehow know what is right and good. The issue is, is the law is actually more like a diagnostic tool. It's like a thermometer. 
A thermometer has the ability to show you what's wrong with you, that you're sick. But it doesn't have the ability to save you, to make you better. And so that was the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to show you there is a moral standard and you're not living up to it. You know who you should be and you also know you are not that person. I don't care who you are, I don't care what you believe, everybody knows it and you say it all the time because you say, you know, nobody's perfect. That means there's a law of perfection and I am not it. And so this is the human dilemma. We know who we should be, and yet we are not that person. So what do we do? Well, the scriptures say this is why we try to justify ourselves, and we can do this different ways. The first one Paul points out is you can try to justify yourself. It's called self-righteousness. Make yourself right. And you do this through proving, working harder, impressing others, including yourself and God. And so if you were to just just for a moment, be honest with yourself and look at what your primary motivators are in life. Like what gets you up in the morning? What makes you work so hard? Why are you trying to shape this identity so that other people have this opinion of you? Why is there so much fear and anxiety and you're constantly combating that? What is it within you? The Bible would say that thing that is in you is you're trying to justify yourself because you know you're not who you're supposed to be. So for me, One of the primary things that I do as far as my job goes is this, is I get up here and I I give a a sermon. I can be tempted to walk away from a weekend in which I didn't do very good and it didn't really connect and I didn't present very well and I could say, Cody, what are you doing with your life, man? I've had some of these before where you just, do you, have you done this before? Like why, what are you doing? You know, this is an embarrassment. You should go and just hide in shame for a little bit. You're not good at this. You're worthless. Because if this is where I find my justification, if this is where I prove myself to me and to the world and to God, and I don't do well, I'm a failure. I'm a nothing. And so it's just this constant cycle this never-ending cycle. I'm constantly having to prove and impress. And then Paul says, that's a losing game. Because one, you're never going to be enough. You're always going to fall short. And the other is, do you think God's going to be impressed? Like he looks at you and goes, okay, so I, I died on a cross and you served at a soup kitchen one time. Wow, we're practically equals here. No, he's going to go, yeah, okay. That doesn't mean a whole lot. You did it to make yourself feel better anyway. So what do you got? Or... Paul says, instead of self-righteousness, you can have God's righteousness. And this is where, instead of us trying to prove and earn, we simply say, I know I'm not enough. I know there's nothing I can do to be enough. That's why I need Jesus. He is enough. And he said that he would trade me places. That's what he did on the cross. And so I accept that. That is a gift that I receive. I've heard people say that Christianity is a crutch. Have you ever heard that before? Christianity is a crutch. Just for weak-minded people who can't put up with life. Just can't deal with things. And it used to bother me when people would say that. But I actually have come to believe that they're right. Christianity is a crutch. Because in order to have a crutch, you have to admit that you're broken and you can't do it yourself. You need something to lean on. And that is what Christianity is. It's me saying, I'm not enough. I'm broken. I can't fix myself. I, I need someone. But here's the difference is... I think that not only do I need a crutch, but everybody needs a crutch. Everyone in the world is a complete disaster. How many times have you woken up, looked in the mirror and gone, you're perfect. (laughs) You did it. Mark this date down. You have done it. Perfection. 
No, you've had so many mornings where you wake up and you just go, I can't even look at myself right now. Oh, I'm a disaster. I look like a disaster. I smell like a disaster. My life is a mess. See, the Christian is the one that is willing to admit, I am broken and I cannot fix myself. Everybody else, what they do is they try to numb the pain or distract themselves from the fact that they're broken. And so I think it really takes strength to admit how broken you are and that you cannot fix yourself. And then he ends with this. He says, who is this for? This is for everyone. It's for everybody because we're all broken and we all need it. And so God has provided a way for everyone. Let's go to the next verse, verse nine. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So he's saying, if you want to receive this forgiveness, if you want to stop trying to earn and prove and just simply receive, here's what you have to do. And he kind of lays it out. He says, the first thing you have to do, and this is really one and the same, he says, you have to confess that Jesus is Lord. So what does it mean? Is it like magic words? You say Jesus is Lord and then boom, he, you know, there you go, you're good. No, it's what does this statement mean? When you say this, you are saying Jesus is God. He is king over all creation. He has died, he has risen again, and he did it for my sins. And it's only through him that I can be saved and that is through him I'll have eternal life. That's what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. Now you can say all of those things, but there's more to it than that. Because it says that even the demons believe those things, that Jesus is God and that he raised from the dead. And demons believe those, so there's gotta be more to it. What you're doing is you're not only confessing, but you're committing to something. You're committing not only is Jesus those things, but he is those things for me. He is the Lord of my life. He is in charge. We used the illustration a couple of weeks ago. It's a transfer of trust. It's like when you're driving and you're in the wheel of your life and then you get in the passenger seat, he gets in the driver's seat and you say, wherever you want to go, however you want to get there, it's yours. You drive, I'm not driving anymore. That's what it means to confess that Jesus is Lord. Verse 11. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you're a skeptic, and I am, if you know me, I'm pretty skeptical. I got a lot of questions. I, I have a lot of doubts when it comes to faith. There may be a question when you read verses like this. At least there is when I do. Because it says anyone who confesses Christ will be saved. But what about the people who do not confess Christ? Are you trying to tell me that Jesus is the only way to heaven? No, I would say, first of all, Cody's not saying that. The Bible says that. But let's explore that a little bit because that's a very interesting question. Is it feels a little bit arrogant. Like how can you say that out of the billions of people and the, all the worldviews and the religions that yours is the only right one and everybody else is wrong? Doesn't that seem arrogant? And I understand the question. I understand the emotion. But you got to understand a little bit where it's coming from. Is we live in a society that is pluralistic. And so we ask different questions than they would ask, say, in the Middle East. The Middle East, do you think that they're concerned about this question? No. No, no, no. They're not worried about this question. We're worried about it because we live in a place in which we have many faiths, which is a really good thing, and they're all treated as equal. They all should have equal freedoms. It's the freedom of religion. And so because we have freedom of religion, and all faiths should be treated equally, we have taken this and we have now turned it into a theological belief that not only all faiths should be treated equally or have equal freedoms, but all should be seen as equally true. 
And you've heard this before, what is true for you is true for you, what is true for me is true for me. But that's not how truth works. There's even an old um, Indian illustration, and it goes something like this, and, and kind of the idea is that all paths lead to God, and so it's illustrated by some blind men and an elephant. And maybe you've heard this before is blind men go and they're trying to figure out what the elephant is. And so the first guy feels its side and he says it's like a giant wall. And the second guy feels his tusk. It's like a spear. The third guy, the trunk, it's like a snake. The fourth, his leg is like a tree. The fifth, his ear is like a fan. The sixth, his tail is like a rope. And what he's trying to illustrate is everybody has just a part of the truth. You're partly right. You're partly wrong. You're all kind of trying to figure out the same thing, but you just don't have the whole picture. And that's how God is. As we have all these paths that are leading to God and all of us maybe have a piece of the truth, but nobody has the full truth. Here's the problem. How do you know that somebody only has part of the truth? Because you have the whole truth. How do you know that people only have a piece of the puzzle? Because you have the whole puzzle. And so it's actually a self-defeating argument is nobody has the whole picture except for me who's telling you that you don't have the whole picture. Well, that didn't work because the nature of truth is it's exclusive. Everyone who makes a claim about the world, which is everybody, you can't not make a claim about how the world operates, is making an exclusive claim. You could be a person who says there is no God. Well, you're making a claim that excludes all other beliefs like mine and the rest of the religious uh, beliefs in the world is that they're false. Or you could be a person that believes, you know, all paths lead to God. And so you're now excluding my belief and, and Islam and Judaism and you're excluding us. See, everybody's got to make a truth claim. What's interesting about Christianity is it is actually not because it's exclusive, but what has been historically um, interesting about it is that it's inclusive. Think about all the belief systems in the world. What is the most inclusive belief system? Christianity. It's why you find it in all, all, different, all different places in the world. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter. Everybody is welcome. Remember, because it's for everybody. Let's continue on verse, uh, I think it's next verse is 14. And he's about to make an argument. Here's what he says. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? So what Paul is going to do here is he's going to make a, a, a series of arguments that build upon each other, and he's going to do it in a form of questions. And so he says, okay, if Jesus is the only way to be saved, how are they able to call on him if they can't call on the one whom they've never heard? So you got to hear about Jesus if you're ever going to be saved by Jesus. I read a book this last week about a former Muslim woman who she started to have dreams and visions about Jesus. And in Islam, Jesus is a prophet, but they don't have a true depiction of who he is. And, and so she started having dreams and visions and, and it felt like he was calling her. And she didn't know what to do. She, she tried to find a Bible, it wasn't readily available. And then she finally found one, she couldn't quite understand it. And it wasn't until she came across some missionaries that could explain it to her. And then she could finally hear who Jesus was. See, she could be called by Jesus. He does something miraculous. That can happen for sure, but who's gonna, how is she going to hear about Jesus? Well, somebody's got to come. Someone has to speak. Someone has to tell her. And so how can they hear without someone preaching to them? It's not going to happen miraculously. It's not going to happen through contemplation or meditation. It's got to be someone who comes. I mean, you think of preaching as something that I do or that Doyle does. No, that's not what it is. Preaching is simply someone who is announcing or proclaiming the good news, the gospel. That's what we all do if we're Christ followers. It's all of us are people who go out and we preach the good news. And it ends with, uh, with this. 
Verse 15. And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Now, this is at the core of the Christian faith. Is Jesus was sent to earth in order to preach the good news that salvation is available. And then he turns around and he calls his followers to go out and to and sends us out and, and to preach that good news to everybody else. And so it's kind of like a two-way thing. When you're following Jesus, you're both following Jesus and then you're being sent out into the world. And so who's going to hear unless we are sent out to proclaim the good news? I think, um, I think being sent is a, a, a core of our identity and our mission and for the last few years, I'll be really honest, is I have seen the task of being sent out into the world as kind of daunting. Like, it just feels like people have been hostile. They don't want to hear about faith. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to, you know, they, what they hear about is they hear po politics. They hear division. They hear hypocrites. They hear, and they, they don't want to hear Jesus anymore. But then something, something's changed recently, and maybe you felt it. But it feels like the the spiritual temperature is starting to change within our culture. That people are starting to look at where we have arrived and going, you know, we didn't arrive at the utopia that we thought we were going to be. Things are messy. In fact, things are kind of scary. And so people are beginning to ask questions. You know, maybe we should figure out how we got here and then how we can get back to something that feels a little bit more normal. And they're starting to ask those spiritual questions. I read an article this week, it was from a woman who is well-known, and she was a former Muslim who lived under the Muslim Brotherhood, and she then came here to the West, and she became not only an atheist, but a part of what was called the New Atheist Movement. She was a spokesperson, she was at the forefront, she would hang out with people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, and she was advocating that we need to get rid of religion, that it's destructive, that it's nasty. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's only through humanity and our goodness that we're going to get things right. And this week she wrote an essay. And the essay was titled, Why I've Become a Christian. And it was really interesting. One, because someone who is prominent in this new atheist movement has now declared that they are a Christian, which is just miraculous in itself. But she started to enumerate all the reasons why she's become a Christian. And she said... At first, it was the decline of Western civilization. I have come to realize that all the things that I value and love the most are all rooted in the Christian faith. And that as much as I wanted atheism to be able to be the foundation for those things, it was impossible. And then she also said there were some personal reasons. I'll read a, a paragraph. She says, I've also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable. Indeed, very nearly self-destructive atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? The God hole, the void left by the retreat of the church, has merely been filled by a jumble of irrational quasi-religious dogma. You know, it's not enough. And so she started to go back to the last place that she thought she would be, church. And the last person she thought she would be following, Jesus. I read another book, and it was a survey of all the people who don't go to church and how they feel about Jesus and church. And here was what was surprising to me. The overwhelming majority of people said, if someone invited me to come to church, I would say yes. That is very different than how it has been 10 years ago. Because there's a spiritual hunger there. People are looking around and going, I'm not sure how we got here, but we need to get out of this mess. Both as a culture, but also as individuals. What are we going to do? And they're looking and so here's what's really unique about the season that we're in. 
One, the spiritual hunger that we see, but the other is as we're entering into this Christmas season, we also see that this is a time in which people are most willing to say yes to an invitation and ask about spiritual questions. And so we have the opportunity to do something. Well, let me see. I'll end it with this because this is what Paul says. He said, it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. That's what we get to do. Imagine this, just the context that this is taking place. Is this is in the Middle East. It's dusty. It's grimy. They have sandals and they're walking to these distant villages. There's no mani-pedis. There's no showers. Can you imagine what these feet look like? Some of you guys have like a feet phobia. Just picture these feet for a second. And yet, Paul says people are going to look at those feet and go, wow, those are beautiful. Why? Because the message that they're bringing, the message that Jesus can change everything, that's beautiful. And so that's what we have the opportunity to do, is we are right in the middle of what God is doing. We're on the forefront of faith. And so we get to be those beautiful feet who are bringing that message to our family and friends around us. And in this season, maybe it's as simple as an invite. And so today we're going to celebrate some people who have said yes to that invitation and have accepted this good news and have given their life to Christ. But before they come and we celebrate their baptism, let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for the good news that we are not alone, that there is hope, and that even though when the world seems crazy and is a bit, bit messy, you're still in control. And so Lord, allow us to just keep up with what you're doing in this church and in, in the West and in the world. Lord, you seem to be doing something significant and we want to be right at the center of your will. And so Lord, help us to be people who pray boldly, who, who invite, who are open to anyone who may ask why we have this hope. Lord, we pray that you will just continue to do what you have been doing, which is use us in some pretty amazing ways to change people's eternities. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.